Well, John chapter 16, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing passage that we find ourselves in. I was reflecting back even on my own life. I have spent the last 36 years of my life studying the scripture full time in essence, probably 20 to 30 hours a week for the last uh, 36 years. And sometimes you come to text and you just faithfully exposit them and they bring truth home to your heart. And sometimes you study the text and you're amazed and you're lost in wonder at the goodness of God. And I believe that this is one of those texts this morning in John chapter 16. Let me read for you 16 verses 7 through 11. There, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. It is another great passage on the Holy Spirit. You remember that as we come into the setting here of the context... It is on the eve of the cross. It is Thursday night. They have left the upper room at the end of John chapter 14. They are making their way on into Gethsemane where he will pray, where he will be arrested, that he will be tried, and he will be delivered and crucified just on the very next day. It could even be that it's Friday morning early here, possibly Thursday night. The disciples, as you can imagine, are overwhelmed at the thought of Jesus Christ, their fearless leader, the last three years of their life, departing from them. And so he comforts them in 14, 15, and 16. He gives them promises that we can hold on to. He promises heaven to the disciples, heaven to us. He promises eternal life to us. He gives us in chapter 14 his peace. He extends his love to us. And then as we come into chapter 15, one of those promises is that he dispatches at his glorification, which is his death, his resurrection and ascension, the person of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit. He gives to us the third person of the Trinity. But in the midst of these promises, in the midst of comforts, we've been looking the last couple weeks that there's going to be hatred, that there's going to be persecution, that there is going to be murder, if you will. Jesus said at the end of 15 and 18, if they hated me, they will hate you. And so he's preparing those disciples. He's preparing us even for the future. Now, the question would arise out of the text, at least immediately from these disciples who would then become the apostles, how do we carry on in light of his departure? I mean, that is an amazing statement in 16.7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And they're left wondering, how is it to their 
advantage. Well, it's our privilege this morning to study the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer today. Certainly these are truths that he gave to those apostles probably on that walk through Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley up into that Mount of Olives where not far was the Garden of Gethsemane. And he gives these truths, and he gave them then, and they apply to us today. And so this is not a history lesson. I've titled it appropriately, The Holy Spirit's Role Today, specifically in the life of the believer. I think I have to make this statement up front that the clearest teaching in all of the Scripture on the role of the Holy Spirit is from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I say that today because I think many people think they have a greater commodity on who he is than the role of Scripture. And I just remind you that the greatest teacher in all of the Scripture on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the Lord himself. Now again, as we drop into this section, the Savior's departure is a devastating loss to them. What would our Lord say to them? And as I mentioned, he gives them one of the greatest statements in all of the Scripture. Verse 7. He says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, it's to those disciples' advantage. It's to our advantage that he goes away. He says there, if I go, I will send him to you. And so heaven, if you will, dispatches the third person of the Trinity at the departure of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit, according to John 7.39, hadn't been given yet, it says in 7.39, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Glorified in that context, of course, includes his death, resurrection, ascension. We know from the greater revelation of Scripture, the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on those believers. And amazingly, they went from the twelve to maybe the 70, to the preaching at Peter on Pentecost where 3,000 souls were saved. If Peter had preached that message the day before, nothing would have happened. And so as he ascends into heaven, he dispatches the person of the Holy Spirit to us that would not only be bearing witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the apostles bore witness, and when they preached... 3,000 souls were saved. You say, well, Scott, how is it to our advantage? Well, there's many things that we've already said on the Holy Spirit, but I would at least say this, that until that time, the ministry of Jesus Christ was localized. In other words, he had to be physically present for someone to touch the hem of the garment. Of course, he could send the word and somebody could be healed, but wherever Christ was, he was physically present. And so as he departs, he delivers to you the person of the Holy Spirit whom the Bible says takes up residence in you. In other words, as you come into worship this morning, as you move about your week, the person and work of the Holy Spirit is taking up the indwelling permanent presence inside you. In fact, look back in chapter 14. I just remind you of a few things. In chapter 14, it says in verse 17, where he's called the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. 
You know him. Now look what it says. You, it says, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be, what? In you. This is the magnificent thought of the advantage of his departure. He has taken up residence in the life of every believer in light of his ascension to the Father. So from now on, he would not just assist you. He will not just be with you. He will be in you. In fact, look at 14, 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And the text says in 18 of chapter 14, I will come to you. Now, certainly I think I taught there that he's going to come to them physically first in his resurrection. But when he says, I will come to you, he's also saying that I'm going to send another helper. I'm the helper, but I'm going to send you another helper, and he's going to be in you. And so the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And what you say, what does that mean? Well, he takes up permanent residence in the body of believers. In fact, when you trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. He said, what, what do you mean by that? Well, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. In other words, you have the person of the spirit residing in you. Remember weeks back I said there was a song that says, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Well, even better than filling this place, he lives and dwells within you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And so Jesus insists that it's better with the coming of the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit living in you. He indwells in you. He empowers you. You say empowers you in what way? Look at chapter 15, verse um, chapter 15, verse 27. If you look down there, it, at the end of 26, he tells the apostles, he will, speaking of the Holy Spirit, bear witness about me. Verse 27, you also will bear witness of me, stated to the apostles, but of course by application to us that we too will bear witness of me. Now as we come then into chapter 16, we're following the same pattern at the end of chapter 15. We are hated by the world in 16, 1 through 6. But then when you get to chapter 16, verse 7, down through verse 15, we are helped by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be hated by the world. They're going to deliver you up and kill you in some cases. But then in 7 through 15... We are aided or helped by the Holy Spirit. So running from verse 7 down through verse 15, we're looking at five essential characteristics of the Holy Spirit that are laid out that enable the believer to be a witness to the world, okay? In other words, back even in chapter 15, five essential characteristics of the Holy Spirit that are clearly laid out by Jesus Christ that enables the believer to be a witness in the world. Now we've looked at the first three. Number one, he's identified by name. 
He is identified by name. Look back at, six, at verse 26 of chapter 15. There he's called the helper. He's called the helper. That is his name. He's the parakletos. He comes alongside. In other words, and we've discussed that at length. But he's identified by name. He's also called, in verse 26 of chapter 15, the spirit of truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth itself in comparison to lies. God can never lie. The Holy Spirit can never lie. What the Holy Spirit reveals to these apostles there in chapter 15 and chapter 16 is the spirit of truth. He is identified by name. Secondly, he is identified by the sender. By the sender. If you look at verse 26, he says there, chapter 15, whom I will send you from the Father. He's sent by the Father, but here as well in 1526, Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to you. So again, you have living inside you the indwelling permanent presence of the Holy Spirit, but he's been sent by the Father earlier in chapter 14. And here Jesus says in 1526 that I will send him to you. Then thirdly, he was identified by function. You say, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, it says in 1526 at the end that he will bear witness about me. The role of the Holy Spirit is to not give you a feeling, though he's going to grant assurance. He's not to give you some kind of mystical message. Uh, the text is really clear. His role, here his function, is to bear witness about Jesus Christ. That is his function. Now, there's many functions in that, but that is his function. If you glance down at chapter 16, verse 14, that we'll look at next time, he, uh, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, he's going to declare to you in that coming context the scripture itself. So he's identified by function. And now we come to where we are today. He's identified fourthly by his convicting work in the world. Okay, He's identified by the convicting work in the world by the Holy Spirit. That's 8 through 11. In fact, look at verse 8. When he comes, speaking of the coming of the Spirit, obviously, he will, the Holy Spirit, convict the world. Now, if you've got a pen in, in your Bible, you could underline the word convict. It is what we call the lead verb. It, in other words, it becomes the umbrella verb that other things are attached to. In fact, if you look at verse 8, he will convict the world. It says concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then that thought of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is then elaborated, you could see it in verse 9, concerning sin, elaborated in verse 10, concerning righteousness, and elaborated in verse 11, concerning judgment. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, at least in this text, it's demonstrated in three ways. 
In fact, we'll see what that means. So let's walk through that. You're going to have to stay with me. There's a definite exhortation to us in it, and I think it will lead us right into communion this morning. But here it's demonstrated first in the conviction of sin. The conviction of sin. You can see it there in verse 8. He will convict the world concerning sin. Now in verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Here Jesus said it is the Spirit's convicting work that reveals to the world their sin. In other words, the purpose, the convicting work that he does is to expose, is what the word convict means, expose the world's sin. To convince the world of sin. And so the word there means to expose, if you will. But it's also interesting that that word, that verb for convict, is also a legal term. In other words, it is the role of the Holy Spirit acting, and I'm going to use this language because I think it's fair to the Greek word, like a prosecuting attorney. In fact, that word for convict was used in a courtroom. In other words, as a prosecutor, the Holy Spirit drives home personal conviction in an individual's heart and mind. In other words, the aim of the Holy Spirit's work is to bring the unbeliever to see the perilous condition in which he or she stands. In other words, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts sinners. In other words, he works in our heart, but here you'll note there again in verse 8, he will convict the world, and the world in John's gospel is the world of unbelievers. And so as Jesus departs, as he was permanently or, or personally present with those apostles, he leaves. How would that work carry on? Well, it carries on now through the Holy Spirit and his conviction that he brings to sinners. Sinners. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, it produces, does the Spirit, an overwhelming sense of sin to those without Christ. And of course, he's convicting the world of sin. And that's just a, a phrase. I don't want to skip over that with you. You might likely know what is sin. Sin is to miss the mark. God's standard is holiness. God's standard is perfection. And what sin does, we like to say that missed the mark because it was used in archery back then when uh, uh, one shooting an arrow would try to hit the bullseye. And when you miss the bullseye, you miss the mark. That's the word that captures for sin. All of the world, as we know, in Romans 3.23, is guilty of sin. The Bible clearly tells us in Ephesians 2.1 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, when the Holy Spirit begins to work on a man or woman, you become overwhelmed by sin. You become overwhelmed by the guilt of that sin. And the role here of the Holy Spirit is left at the departure of Christ to convict the world concerning sin. Of course, we understand in the Bible that man is blinded, one of the writers said, by his sin. We are alienated because of our sin. We are, in the book of Ephesians, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. 
So as he departs, he dispatches, if you will, the Holy Spirit to convict and to save. In other words, he brings you to see your lost condition. He brings you to see the weight of your sin. He brings you to see the enormity of your sin. He exposes that you're a liar. He exposes to you that you've not kept God's standard. And you begin to feel the weight and the overwhelming sense of violating the holy standard of God. In other words, he begins to pressure you regarding your sin. He begins to bring that sin before you. He begins to show it to you in all of its color. Listen, if you're saved here this morning and you're going to come to communion and you said, oh yeah, I did trust Christ. Oh yeah, I, I did realize at whatever age or whatever time or whatever place that you violated God's righteous standard. You say, yeah, that is my testimony. Well, here's what Jesus is saying. That's what the Holy Spirit did in your life. That's what the Holy Spirit did in your heart. Listen, if it was left to you or me, you would never trust Christ. You are dead in your trespasses and what? Sins. There is no spiritual life beating in you. And God, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, begins to break down the weight of your self-righteousness and expose your sin. I mean, maybe you'd look back and you say, yes, and I, I realize, Pastor, I lied. I realize I was lying to my parents. I realized that I was a thief. I realized that my life, far from keeping the standard of God, I was identified as a sinner and I dropped down to my knees. Listen, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the work of God convicting you here through God, the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. So number one, there's conviction of sin. But number two, there's conviction of righteousness. Look at verse 10. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And so here you have to ask the question, what is righteousness? Is this the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Is this uh, self-righteousness? I think likely here, as he convicts the world concerning righteousness, at least it begins with sin that the world and you did not recognize that he exposed. But what the Holy Spirit does is he convicts here of self-righteousness. In fact, this was true of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 64, 6, all your righteous deeds, he says there, are like a filthy garment. And it spoke there of the Jewish people and their righteous deeds. And certainly as we've been looking through the Gospel of John, think about these religious leaders. Some of them who were meticulously studying the law of Moses, at least in chapter 7 and verse 19, were seeking all at the same time to attempt to murder Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is certainly seen in verse 2 of chapter 16 where he says they will put you out of the synagogues indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God that may be the ultimate form of self-righteousness so self-righteous in your own position 
that they murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. They murdered John the Baptist, cut his head off. They murdered all the prophets. Jesus said at one time, which one of the prophets did they not kill? So what the Holy Spirit does is he, and he may be speaking to you right now. He may be exposing sin. He may be exposing self-righteousness even now. In fact, you know how self-righteous they were. Remember back in John chapter 5, the Sabbath is religiously kept while Jesus is condemned for healing a paralytic for 38 years. I mean, that is self-righteousness. But that is what we call human righteousness. That righteousness, according to the scripture, is inadequate, it's insufficient, it's unacceptable to God. Do you remember what Paul told the Jewish nation? He said in Romans chapter 10, they do not know the righteousness that comes from God, and so they sought to establish their own. There's a lot of people like that in the Central Valley. They don't know about God's righteousness, so they seek to establish their own righteousness. In other words, their own deeds and so forth. And remember Paul in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, he was looking before he had come to Christ, giving his testimony. He said, as to zeal, here's what the thought is, a persecutor of the church. I mean, Paul wasn't just ungodly like the Gentiles. He said, as to zeal, I was the most zealous. He said, I was a persecutor of the church. Remember that? He used to hunt them down from city to city. He was a persecutor, and as to righteousness, Paul said, under the law, blameless. In other words, as he looked at his own life before Christ, he thought he was blameless. He thought he was a good guy. He thought if it weighed out in the scales of balance, listen, I'm blameless. And I don't think he's just saying that. I think out of all his rabbis that he was associated with, he was the most zealous. He was the most blameless in his eyes. But remember, he said, whatever gain I had, he said, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He says, I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And remember what he said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the agency of faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. I love that statement. But this is the world in which we live in. They seek to establish their own definition of sin. Okay, They seek to establish their own definition of righteousness, which is self-righteousness. However, beloved, we understand that our sin falls short of God's glory. Sin and self-righteousness damns you to hell. Our righteousness, Isaiah said, is as filthy rags. The righteousness that truly saves belongs only in the person of Christ. It comes outside of yourself. It is what the reformers called an alien righteousness. In other words, it comes in from the outside. It doesn't come out of you internally. And beloved, that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. In other words, his righteousness is his perfect life. And the way you get it is you can't purchase it. You can't merit it. You can't pay, do any kind of deed for it. You have to come, drop to your knees, 
Cry out in faith to God and he gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is what we call the great exchange. Now, beloved, I've shared with you before that's different than Roman Catholicism. And I've shared that with you before when I was there a couple years back and they walk through the door of Jubilee. And the door of Jubilee is on all the basilicas there. And usually that year of Jubilee is every 50 years. But this pope made an, you know, an exception to that and he put it at the 25th year. And I think they were expecting that particular year. You could understand millions of people just to come through and walk through the door of Jubilee. You say, well, what do you mean the door of Jubilee? Well, it's a door, okay, that's padded up and boarded up for years until he says so. So when he gave that function, they took the boards off. And if you walk through the door, you receive the absolvement of all your sins. Every sin you ever committed was forgiven you for that moment, looking back. Of course, you're going to sin again, then you'd have to go back in, confess that sin. But you can imagine, if you're a sinner, and you feel the weight of your sin, then people flew all over the globe for that event, because all you had to do is walk through the door, and you receive forgiveness. But again, that's something you're doing. That's something you're flying to, that you're going to that you're physically walking through. That's not what the Bible describes as righteousness. The Bible describes as righteousness the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he lived a righteous life. You can't get the righteousness of God by any other element than by faith becomes the channel to receive that. And this is the gospel. This is what the reformers called the great exchange. In other words, he takes your sin away from you on the cross and then he gives you the perfect righteousness of Christ. So back to the point. The Holy Spirit's role is he crushes self-exalting, self-righteousness, exposing the darkness of your heart. That's what he does. You say, did, I mean, did it ever come to you? And I would think that everybody's come to Christ in the same way. I mean, there's different ways that that occurred for the person, but usually it's this way. All of a sudden, you see your sin. All of a sudden, you thought at one point you were okay. All of a sudden, you thought, hey, I'm a pretty nice guy. Hey, compared to other people, I'm okay. Your sin didn't bother you. Your sinful weekends never bothered you. In fact, you reveled in them. You sought people to join you in them. Then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, through whatever means, and I'll talk about that in a moment, begin to convict you of your sin. He began to push forward your sin on your heart. He began to expose the darkness of your heart. And he doesn't have to expose sins, plural. He could just expose sin, singular. And all of a sudden you went from being happy to under this weight, to under this conviction, to this pressure in your life. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit. Then once he begins to expose your sin, he comes after your proud self-righteousness. 
And he begins to show you that your way is the wrong way. That your way is not the proper way. That your way actually not only helps you, it condemns you. And all of a sudden, you feel like you're peeled back and your self-righteousness is exposed. Listen, as you come to the Lord's table, you ought to be grateful. Because if that was the case, and that's usually the case for everybody, okay, then that's not your doing. That is the Holy Spirit weighing on you. That is the Holy Spirit hunting you, if you will, to expose that in you. That is what we used to call the hound of heaven who begins to pursue you at every moment. And it could be that you feel that way right now. Like you're probably thinking, I read some of your emails and I haven't. It could be the convicting power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. This is what he does. He convicts the world concerning sin. He convicts the world of righteousness. And he does that. Look in the text in verse 10. He says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. So his return to heaven, if you will, is the proof of his own righteousness that God accepts. And so the Holy Spirit convicts the world of self-righteousness. Then he also convicts of true righteousness as only revealed in Christ. Listen, I remember that moment in my own life at 14 when, see, I, here's, how I, here's how I would say it. I felt the weight of my sin. I felt the fact that I was convicted of my sin. So I would say I dropped to my knees. It's whatever your account is. Listen, that is the presence and the role of the Holy Spirit. He convicts concerning sin. He convicts concerning righteousness, at least self-righteousness. And then he shows you the true righteousness only bound up in Christ. And then maybe in this order, thirdly, look there, he convicts, it says, the world of judgment. Look at verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And you might say, what do you mean he convicts concerning judgment? Well, I think here... Staying in the flow of the text, he convicts the world of a true account of what sin is. He convicts the world of their own self-righteousness and then the true righteousness. And here, I think he's exonerating the person of Christ. They thought they truly judged the Lord Jesus Christ and oh, they were so wrong. Here, it's a false judgment. He's convicting the world of a false judgment both that they had of the person of Christ and even their future judgment. Now you'll note here that it says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan, as we know from John 12, was judged and condemned on the cross. His judgment, Satan's, was executed on the cross. You say, well, why on the cross? Because it was on the cross that he paid for your sins. It was on the cross that he defeated death by his resurrection on the third day. He died in your place. He died to take you away from the power of death. He died as your substitute. And because of his death in Philippians 2, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so what the Holy Spirit does is he convicts of sin. He convicts of righteousness. He convicts the world of a false judgment and then begins to push, push judgment into your own hearts. Listen, I would say this. If Christ defeated the greatest enemy, Satan himself, then what makes anybody think they can escape the coming future judgment when they stand before God? Listen, I guarantee you, at some point in your salvation, you not only saw your sin, you not only had your self-righteousness exposed, but all of a sudden the crushing terror of a Christless eternity came crashing down on you. I mean, that was true of me. Was that true of you? I mean, you cry out to Christ when you recognize you are on your way to hell. Say, so who does that? The Holy Spirit does that. You don't do this, but I'm going to share something with you. In other words, listen, it's his work. He's sovereign in that. He must save you, John 3, by his spirit. But then you begin to have an overwhelming sense of your own judgment. That you're going to stand before God one day. That you're going to give an account of your life one day. That Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once, then comes what? judgment the holy spirit has to do that okay you do not do that in your own life for yourself he shows you that let, let me just ask you a question what is the greatest sin today what, what what is the greatest sin today i mean i i suppose we can say a number of things we could say murder just read a story where someone was Caught for murdering eight people. You just read it and you realize there's a judgment. Is abortion the worst sin? Certainly abortion is an awful sin. Maybe adultery. Listen, the greatest sin in the world today is unbelief. The greatest sin in the world today is not believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The ultimate sin today of not confessing Christ condemns people to hell. What it's exposing is that someone has chosen another God. That other God, however it's fashioned, is themselves. And you become the center of all things and refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. That is the greatest sin in fact, you say, why do I say that? Because look back at the text in 16.9. He says, concerning sin, here it is, because they do not believe in me. In other words, they reject Christ. They reject his scripture and are thus, in this context, judged in the true way by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus kept saying, like in John 8.24, he said, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is the one sin that leads you straight to hell. In fact, he said it in John 5, he said it in John 8, he said it in John 15. You must believe on me to be saved. Now, here's the question. I've thought a lot about this this week. What does the Holy Spirit use to accomplish the conviction of sin 
righteousness, and judgment. Like I've told you, and you would probably say, yeah, Scott, that's what happened to me. I was moving along, and this weight, this crushing weight, I, I can't even explain it, was upon me. And, and my question is, how does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit bring about the conviction of sin and of righteousness and judgment? You say, well, Scotty, he does it by way of the Holy Spirit. Yes, but he uses a means to accomplish that. And what means does the Holy Spirit use to accomplish that? Well, beloved, he uses his word. He uses the word of God. He uses the word of God to expose sin, to expose self-righteousness, to expose judgment to come. Look back again, and I'll show you why that's true. In verse 8, it says, And when he comes, he will convict the world. Stop there just for a second. That Greek term, elenko, is the key here. And it has a couple of different meanings, but principally, convict means to show someone their sin and summon them to repentance, okay? That's just a classical lexical definition for you of what elenko means, and the word is inspired, so you look up words. What does elenko mean? It means to show someone their sin and summon them to repentance. But it also means, stronger than that, it means to put to shame. To put to shame. In fact, the word was used for someone who would cross-examine someone in a court. So that it doesn't just merely mean to expose, which it means that, but it, in the context, it is one of profound shame, one of profound guilt. In fact, the word to convict is understood in a judicial sense of bringing down a negative verdict. Listen, regardless of whether or not the convicted party admits to any guilt. Because you're probably saying, hey, Scott, if this is what he does, how come he's doing it in so few? Well, listen, he's going to render... That verdict, regardless of whether or not the convicted party admits any guilt. But the question again, back to you, is how does he do that? And I'm going to make this assessment to you that he does that through the power of the Word of God. That verb is used, convict, 18 times in the New Testament. And nearly every single time it is used... It is the word of God that is used to convict someone of sin and call them to repentance. Let me show you. Look in your Bible in 1 Timothy just for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The context is an elder and his role with the word of God. And it talks there of instruction in the church. And it says this in verse 17 of chapter 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And then he says, especially those who labor, labor kapiao to the point of 
exhaustion in preaching and teaching. So they're preaching and teaching the scripture. Verse 18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox or when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And then it says, do not admit charges against an elder on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And those who persist in sin, here's our word convict, but it's translated rebuke, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest of them may stand in fear. And uh, he says in verse 21, I charge you to keep these rules, the scripture that he's teaching, without prejudicing, he says, doing nothing from partiality. But the key there, those who persist in sin, underline that, rebuke them in the presence of all. In other words, I'm giving you, Paul, to Timothy, the scripture, and you are called to bring that scripture, labor in teaching and preaching, and you are to rebuke them. But the conviction or the rebuke comes through the power of the word of God. Look over at 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he is giving the charge there to men in the ministry. And you know this familiar frame. I think it comes up a wrong one on the screen, but it's, it's 2 Timothy 4.2, where it says, preach the what? The word and be ready in season and out of season. And here's the word, reprove. There it is. Rebuke and exhort with great patience and teaching. But there you're preaching the word, and one of the arenas in which you preach it, at least for a pastor, is to reprove. That's the word for convict. So the Holy Spirit is bringing that conviction by use and means of the word of God. Go over to the book of Titus. It says the same there. It says, speaking of an elder's role in Titus 1.9, he must... Speaking of that elder, hold firm. In other words, he's grasping what it says to the trustworthy word as taught. He's clinging to that thing so that, here's the purpose, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, it's the word of God, and also to, there's the word, rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, you convict them. And you use the means of the word of God to accomplish that. You rebuke those who contradict. Look down at chapter 2 in verse 15. In fact, you can go to 2.1. He says, but as for you, Paul to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, there's another sermon right there. The reason churches are unhealthy is because pastors aren't teaching sound doctrine. They have a more clever approach than the word of God. And when you go down that route, at least in chapter 2, you have an absolutely frazzled view of men and women. So he says to Titus, listen, he says, as for you, in contrast to the false teachers at the end of chapter 1, 16, who profess to know God... But they deny them by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In fact, if you back up in Titus chapter 111, those false teachers need to be silenced. They're upsetting whole families. I was just talking to someone last night 
at Nick and Becca's wedding about the, the new movie, I haven't seen it quite, called The American Gospel. From all accounts that I've heard from all people in our circles, they've loved the movie. It's exposing the worldly prosperity gospel teachers that function in the United States. And those people are all over. All over. In fact, the biggest one is up north in Reading called Bethel. There is more false teaching coming out of that church than any other church in all of America. And these people just go on. And Paul told Titus, listen, you need to silence some of those people. And then he says, the false teachers are detestable, but two, one, teach what accords with sound doctrine, which is the scripture. Look down in verse 15. He says, declare these things, Paul to Titus, exhort, and here's our word, and rebuke with all authority. In other words, you convict someone, but the means that the Holy Spirit uses is the word of God to bring about that conviction and bring about that rebuke. Listen, in nearly every passage, the verb convicted, it is the word of God spoken. It is the word of God preached that the Holy Spirit uses to bring this about. In fact, just turn right again. Let me show you another one. Let me give you a couple illustrations. Let me take you to Jude, Jude, the book of Jude. Just no chapters, just Jude 1, if you will, I suppose. And he's talking there about the preaching of Enoch. And I love this. And he says in 14, Jude 14, it was also about these, speaking of the false teachers, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, here's the word you want to identify, prophesied. He was a prophet. He was speaking forth the word of God. And sometimes the word to prophesy there, prophetuo, isn't always a foretelling of future accounts. It is a foretelling of the scripture itself. He prophesied saying, verse 14, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to, here's our word, convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness. He prophesied and in his preaching there, he convicted all of the ungodly. He uses the word of God. In fact, would you look one more time? Go back to the gospel of Luke, okay? Let me just show you this. The gospel of Luke, I'm giving you an illustration of what was patently clear. There's one of Enoch who preached, and maybe this is one reason one reasons why our churches are so weak. I'm just being honest with you. No one is brought under conviction of any sin. Period. You say, well, why is that? Sometimes they just don't uphold this book. Sometimes the goal is to make you feel comfortable. Sometimes the goal is, listen, don't say anything bad. Listen, I know pastors right now who are dealing with this question as it relates to summer camps. Is Listen, we want our kids to come to camp, but we don't want you to preach on the doctrine of hell. Denominations are saying that. So, so listen, if you never understand your sin, if you never understand your self-righteousness, if you never understand judgment to come, then you'll go your merry way and you'll stand before the Lord and it might be like Matthew 7, 21. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? Did we not do these amazing deeds? And Jesus say, will say, be gone from me, I never knew you. 
And that's the world in which we live in. But look at Luke 3. This is John the Baptist. I pray that God gives us, just give me a couple of men like this in this church. Just give me a couple men like this. It was the preacher, John the Baptist. Look at 3.18. Here's how he preached. And with many other exhortations, I love that. He preached good news to the people. He's preaching the good news. And the good news is good because there's bad news. But the good news rescues you from that. And he's preaching. And by the way, I've been to the desert or at least seen the area where he probably preached, it was in no man's land. And they flooded to come hear this guy. And he preached the good news. But the key is verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been, you see that word? Reproved by him. Atlanco, convicted by him. He's preaching the word of God, the good news. And Herod, who had been, reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. Give me a man like that. Give me a pastor like that. Give me a bold pastor who's not afraid to tell the flock what they actually really need to hear. But you say, Scott, you're exercising on this. Here's why. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he convicts, but he uses, beloved, you know that the means of the word of God. Now go back to John 16, and then we need to get to the Lord's table. You say, well, why do you say that, Scott? Because I think it's in the context, his conviction by the word. Look at verse 26 of chapter 15. He will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. But go down to verse 12. He says, I have many, of chapter 16, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. I think he's talking to the apostles there. Into all the truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Look at the end of 15. He said at the end, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. That's the word of God. And we don't have time, but you go into the book of Acts. It was the preached word that they said on the preaching of Pentecost. It says in the Bible they were cut to the, do you remember? To the heart. What must we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized. And Luke tells us in 2.41 that on that day 3,000 souls came to Jesus Christ. Far from emptying the church, it filled the church. But here's the, the last thing to you. It's not just about those messengers, it's about you. He indwells you. He empowers you to be his witnesses through the teaching and the testifying of the word of God. That God wants to use you. He wants to use you empowered by the Holy Spirit to show and reveal the word of God. You know, you may be surprised if you open that word. I remember the first time I ever had, I think, the joy of seeing someone come to Christ is we went to go visit a visitor. I think I've shared this with you once before. Patty, you were with me there. We went to visit a, a woman named Pam Smith. I still remember her. And I still remember sitting with our 
team of two or three and just her. She had visited the church that I was at. And so we received the card in the mail and we followed up the people. And so we said, hey, Pam, uh, you visited our church. Can we come sit with you? So we came and sat with her. And I still remember this. I could still see it. It was probably 30-some years ago, uh, at least, maybe 35. And I'm sharing the word, and our team's just sharing the gospel with her. And right as we're sharing the gospel, she begins to weep. She, she, She couldn't, beloved, get grace. But when she understand grace, something happened to her. And, and tears welled up in her eyes. Then tears began to stream down her face. And I said, oh, is this, this is offensive. No, how come nobody's ever told me this before? And she said, I want this. What do I have to do? And I think in essence, we got down on our knees and let her in the, the sinner's prayer. And, and what I guess I'm telling you is I walked away and thought, wow. The word's more powerful than I thought. We weren't very good at it. We were new at sharing our faith. We stumbled over our words. But what happened there was not us. It was the power of the word of God released through the Holy Spirit that brought this woman to her knees and her relationship in Jesus Christ. Listen, my encouragement to you is who's on your heart this summer? Who's on your heart right now? Women, do you have any kind of Bible study going on with people in your neighborhood? Young men, do you have anything going on? High schoolers, what do you got going on beyond River of Life? What do you got going on in junior high? Though that would be a great place to bring them to those and to Summerfest and to Kids Fest. But all I know is God has left the permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in you. That we would open our mouth to declare the word of God. That people would be brought under conviction of sin righteousness and judgment.